I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and you're listening to the Goop Podcast, made possible by our friends at Bolthouse Farms Plant Protein Milk. There's an ongoing movement toward living a more plant-based lifestyle, which is something we spoke about at our wellness summit in Goop Health. In particular, our readers who are vegans are always looking for great dairy alternatives, and even the non-vegans at Goop love the non-dairy Bolthouse Farms Plant Protein Milk. It's made with protein from peas. And not only is it a delicious alternative to traditional dairy, it has 10 grams of protein per serving. This can give it a leg up on other alternative milks like almond milk, which has one gram of protein per serving. For more information on Bolthouse Farms plant protein milk and for store locations, visit bolthouse.com. Hi, guys. Every Thursday, Goop editors will be sitting down with provocative thinkers, industry disruptors, and culture changers. I'll take turns interviewing barrier-breaking guests as we talk about shifting old paradigms and starting new conversations. Today's guest is multi-hyphenate Olivia Wilde. Olivia is a producer, actor, director, activist, and co-founder of a creative agency and incubator called Conscious Commerce. You might be a fan of hers from House from films like Tron or from Twitter. And she'll be making her feature directorial debut with Booksmart, which stars Caitlin Deaver and Beanie Feldstein. In addition, she is the chief brand activist at one of our favorite clean beauty companies, True Botanicals. We have to take care of ourselves. We have to take care of each other. And when I met Hillary and Christina of True Botanicals, I was sort of gobsmacked to learn what ingredients were in products that I thought were safe. Olivia sat down with our chief content officer, Elise Lunin, to talk about the challenges and excitement of doing things first. I think that we have to empower all different types of storytellers or else we're, we're really going really to end up in a place like we are right now politically. That's a result of only telling one type of story. After the conversation, I'll be doing a quick round of Ask Me Anything. If you've got a burning or totally random question you want me to answer, hit us up at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. But before we get to Olivia, let's talk about one of our partners. Now is the perfect time to catch up on the HBO series Succession. Set in the boardrooms and penthouse apartments of New York City and beyond, Succession explores power, politics, money, and family in the cutthroat corporate world. The new drama follows the saga of the Roy family, owners of one of the biggest media companies in the world. When family patriarch Logan decides he isn't ready to hand over the reins just yet, his adult children take matters into their own hands. From Adam McKay, director of The Big Short, and In the Loop writer Jesse Armstrong, Succession airs Sunday nights at 10 p.m. And you can watch the first three episodes right now on streaming or on-demand platforms, only on HBO. Now, let's get to Elise and her interview with Olivia Wilde. Olivia, take me back to the beginning. You were you were raised in Washington, D.C. Yeah, the very beginning. The beginning of the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, well, it started with the Big Bang. Um, and of course, <laughs> by that, I'm referring to my parents creating me. Um, no, I was born in New York and in Manhattan, born in uh at NYU, lived on the Upper West Side till I was about four, and then my parents moved to D.C. because they needed more space for me and my sister. Not and then, Brooklyn. 
not Brooklyn. That's the move <laughs> I did. If only they had moved to Brooklyn. Although I really appreciate now my DC upbringing. At the time, I was so frustrated we weren't in New York. And now I look back and realize that DC actually is a pretty interesting place and that I was lucky to spend some time there. I did leave when I was 13 to go to boarding school. So I didn't experience the kind of teen hipster DC life, but I did experience rural Massachusetts teen life, which is where my boarding school was. I went to boarding school too in rural New Hampshire. Where did you go? St. Paul's. Oh my goodness. I went to Andover. Rivals. (laughs) (laughs) Those are weird places. I mean, they're magical, amazing places full of opportunity and and intellect, but they're also really intense, particularly for young women. Did you like it? I had a a love-hate relationship with it. I was very much a city kid. I had been given a tremendous amount of freedom and independence by my family, and suddenly I was in the suburbs. I'd never lived anywhere near the suburbs. I remember the first night I was there, my dorm was sort of nestled in a little forest, and I was so freaked out that there were no car alarms, there were no sounds of city life, and I couldn't sleep. And I got used to it. I, I grew to really enjoy it, but it was hard for me because the rules were smothering and I found that they were arbitrary and I just had a real issue with authority at times. But what it gave me was a huge amount of theater experience because whereas my school in D.C., which was a lovely, really um, progressive school called Georgetown Day School, which really focused on the civil rights movement, it was fantastic in many aspects, didn't have a really strong theater program. So Andover had this massive main stage theater, two studio theaters, a black box theater. They had this student producer program where kids could become theater producers. And I produced, you know, 12 plays my senior year. And that gave me experience that I actually used pretty quickly since I didn't go to college and suddenly was working about a year later. So you always wanted to be an actor. Yeah. Okay. Because yeah. I know you come from a family of journalists and it feels like maybe you've gone back to that in some way in yeah. your own work. But Yeah, I think we're all storytellers and I think we found our own ways towards storytelling life. And for me, acting was the truest expression of how I wanted to tell stories because I was very emotional as a kid. And so it was therapeutic for me to find avenues for those emotions. Um, that's why, you know, the arts are so important in public schools because it is therapy for kids. And I encourage everybody to put their kid in a theater program at some point. And for me, I think it really saved me from being medicated or having other deeper emotional problems because I just found ways to channel these very strong feelings into something tangible and beautiful and entertaining and, I suddenly went from feeling like there was something wrong with me that I had such a wild imagination that I felt things so strongly to then feeling like, well, that's actually a a, a gift. It's something that allows me to go out on stage and to make other people feel things. So I knew I wanted to, but now that, you know, I'm 34 and I'm in this place in my career where I'm shifting from acting to directing, I'm realizing that I'm actually coming full circle around to my family and that the way I want to tell stories is actually a little bit closer to the way they have traditionally. Yeah. So you're directing your first movie or you just finished directing your first movie. Yes. yes. And I was saying to you before, like, I can't tell what it's about. It's called Booksmart, but I desperately want to know what it's about because it looks fun. So Booksmart is about female friendship in the most intense part of life about 17, 18 years old, when the friendship that has at 
up until that point been probably your most intimate is forced to evolve and separate. Mm. And it's something that I think everyone can relate to because that friend that got you through high school probably, in most cases, didn't continue in that same intensity into college and beyond. Some people have their best friend from high school for the next 50 years, and that's really magical and wonderful. But for most of us, there was there was a friendship that we had that was the most important friendship at the time that had to break apart. Mm. And so really it's a breakup movie about female, female friends. And it takes place on the last night of high school when these two young women who have defined themselves by their intellect and by their achievements realize that the one thing they've failed to do is have fun and that they're determined to prove that they are not only brilliant, but also fun. And they go on this epic adventure and they learn to really be less judgmental of their peers and to understand that perhaps the whole world wasn't actually against them. Mm-hmm. They just were failing to see the complexity of everyone around them. So what I hope is that it's a movie that encourages people of all ages to be less judgmental, mm-hmm. to question stereotypes, and to allow their own flaws to to bother them less and to just value their friendships and Mm -hmm. to understand how fleeting those friendships can be. I love that. And that's so familiar. Speaking of boarding school, I remember going to my 15 year and watching a good friend of mine, also from DC, incredibly brilliant, sort of go head to head with this popular guy. And essentially he came up to her, her perception was that he had been like dismissive and persecuting of her as like a smart girl. And he came up to her and was like, I just need to tell you how terrible you used to make me feel. And it was, it was actually profound. They both ended up in tears and it's this weird triggering, passing judgment. It's exactly what you were saying. That's exactly what the movie's about. And I think it often happens at those reunions Mm -hmm. or potentially years later when you run into each other as adults and you say, I'm sorry, I was so cruel to you, or you really made me feel terrible. Mm -hmm. And you realize you just didn't see that person and they didn't see you. And what would happen if we all just realized that now and looked around and said, this person that I judge because, you know, she's so beautiful, she couldn't possibly be smart. Mm-hmm. Or she's so beautiful, she's probably mean. Or he's so handsome, he couldn't possibly see me or value me as an intellectual person. Those are all constructs that we're projecting. And what would happen if we just got rid of them, if we just allowed people to have the benefit of the doubt? And it's amazing because it's, it feels so much better to get rid of those mm-hmm. judgments. It just... I think it's easy to forget the weight you put on yourself when you make judgments about other people because you're confining yourself to a space and you're isolating yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think it starts in high school, but it continues beyond. Totally. But what's extraordinary about this movie is that we have this cast of young actors who I believe are going to all be incredibly successful forever, but they're, they've taken on this story and turned it into something much more beautiful and complex than I could have ever dreamed. And that's what's been interesting. It's like you write a movie. In this case, it was an existing script that I rewrote with another writer, Katie Silberman. And then it became another movie when the actors got to it. And now in post, it will become something different. But the constantly evolving nature of the story is pretty fascinating. Yeah. And as you said, incredibly relatable. And I think when you're young and you you sort of operate from that defensive crouch, you know, this like, 
what does everyone think about me? Yes. And meanwhile, it's just this weird mirror, hall of mirrors. Yeah. And I think we often tell our children, you know, it's, it's also a parent's responsibility. We tell our children, you know, like, oh, she's mean, you know, forget that girl. She's mean. She's probably just, she's just sad. She's just an angry person, you know, or, or she's worthless. Don't pay attention to her. Forget her. Continue on. And we continue, we want to protect our kids. We tell them, we, we encourage them to lock people mm-hmm. out because we think that will create somehow this space of protection. But really, we're training them to isolate themselves within mm-hmm. judgment. So instead, if it's like, well, okay, that person was mean to you at school today, ask them what's going on. Mm-hmm. Maybe take them aside and ask them like, hey, did I do something that really bothered you? Or is there something else we can connect on? I think... This movie has helped me understand that about my past. I There were moments in the movie where, as I was directing it, I just wanted to burst out crying because I thought, this is what I've wanted to say to my high school peers yeah. for so long. And to myself, you know, like there's, there's just so much that we carry on from a young age that we carry on our backs into adulthood. And then we put on to our kids. Mm-hmm. And I... I think it makes sense that now that I have two little kids, I wanted to go back and make a high school film because I thought, okay, I really want to like dive into my own baggage, unpack it, and sort of understand it so that I can raise them without projecting all my crap exactly. onto them. Which is um, one of the, the best gifts I think that any of us can give our kids. And I'm, I'm right there with you. And I find too, I think that there's this, this particularly with women, and obviously it's not just women, but um, this... Th- this judgment that we, these things that we hold against ourselves that we then project onto other people. And and that starts in high school, starts probably younger, carries through motherhood. I have those feelings of sort of like rage, which is really rage against myself being a working mom. And it's just, it becomes poisonous. And I also think it's a fallacy. Like I feel like part of it is like a construct like of culture and, and women's media and this like, this idea that this exists, so we have to subscribe to it. That's exactly right. So, mom, working mom, how do you, what What are your, I'm assuming you have amazing help. Amazing help. Uh, yeah, a rotating group of amazing angels that help me live my dreams and also be a mother. Yeah. But it's really... It's really difficult because no matter how much great help you have, no matter how great your partner is, there is a guilt that is super poisonous. Mm -hmm. And I have tried to take the good advice of friends of, you know, don't say you have to go to work, say you get to go to work. But it's really hard to look at your four-year-old who's like, mom, why aren't you taking me to school this morning? And say like, because I get to go to work. (laughs) He's like, but I want you to take me to school. It doesn't make any sense. You know, I had a working mom who would have to go to war zones for three weeks at a time. And, you know, at that point, since it was the olden days and ancient, ancient times, the, you know, communication was such that we'd have one conversation a week on a scratchy phone line that was so, um, so hard to hear her that it was barely worth doing. And my sister and I would just be screaming into the phone, like, bring presents, presents. (laughs) (laughs) And that was something we grew up to understand. And it was normal to us, but I don't, I don't know. You know, I, I struggle with it on a daily basis. Like I don't have it figured out. I, I, I'm constantly looking around to my friends saying, is this okay? Is what I'm doing okay? And without people telling me, they are fine. They are happy. Mm-hmm. You are showing them, you know, how to achieve their goals and to be persistent and ambitious. And that's good. Still, I'm still totally working through it. It's a mm-hmm. nightmare. I was doing a play on Broadway last year and I thought that doing a play would be an ideal situation for having young kids. Cause you know, you're home all day, 
but they're gone all day. And then the moment they come home from like playgroups and school, you're out to go to the theater until 11 and then you come home and you're exhausted and they wake up at six, you know, it's its own drama. But when, when I zoom out, I think about this is the struggle that has stopped a lot of women from achieving their goals Mm -hmm. because the guilt is so powerful. Mm -hmm. And I think about, you know, the sort of mentors I've had who I feel have done it really well. And I think about examples that I don't really want to mimic, but I'm somewhere in between. I haven't figured it out yet, but I think I'm getting better. Yeah. I think I was just talking uh, to my assistant Katie on the way here about how maybe the next step, maybe how I can get better at it next time is to involve them more in work. Like, is it better to bring them to set more often? It's so distracting when you're directing a movie to have your kids there. Mm-hmm. I so badly want to be completely focused on the task at hand, but maybe what I need to learn to do is, is bring them into that world more. Maybe that would help. Yeah. Isn't it interesting? There aren't a lot of men who have that conversation. No, God, not at it's all. So it's not at all. <laughs> and may, like, so is the, is the, is the idea that we're supposed to just say, screw it. No, we're not going to feel this. Men don't feel it. We won't feel it. Mm-hmm. And yet that's denying an innate instinct mm-hmm. that, that we have for a reason. I just wonder, is it biological? Is it useful? The guilt, the attachment, or is it a social construct that is put upon us to keep us down? And do we need to destroy it? Yeah. Like that is what I am struggling I, with. I went to this mom's group with my first, I have a five-year-old and a two-year-old. So similar in age to yours. And she said something really uh, that resonated with me. She was talking to a mom who was having trouble, like, leaving her child at all. And essentially she said, think back about, think back to your own childhood and think about some of your fondest memories. Most likely they were in nature with your friends doing something you weren't supposed to be doing like in moments of freedom. So true. And your parents weren't there. Yeah. You don't think back like, God, that ride to school. (laughs) That's my favorite memory. When you wrote, (laughs) dropped me off at school. It's so true. I also like in, in thinking about like the people you hired to help take care of your kids. For me, it's really important that those people are obviously members of the family and also that you do your best to make your child feel like this is extended family. This is not some person who's arbitrarily Mm -hmm. stuck on me for a while. It's not like a downgrade. It's like this extra perk. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember being psyched when it was like the babysitter is going to take you to ballet class today. And I was like, yes, because she's got better music. She's She's fun. And I think, you know, all of those things... I'm trying to remember and to replicate and sometimes allow those choices my parents made, allow it to evolve a little because they were operating under super high stress situations because they were literally going for weeks at a time to places that were very dangerous that they would fly in separate planes because they were both war correspondents and then documentary filmmakers. And then my dad was writing books. My mom was making films, working for 60 Minutes, working for Frontline, ABC. It was a constant workflow and... I, my childhood in the kind of early 80s was – early mid and then late 80s was sort of like probably the best time for American journalists. There was just a lot going on. Yeah. <laughs> and so they – I look back and I think if I were her, I would have done the same thing. Yeah. But I never resented her for it. And maybe it's – So maybe that's exact. that's – look at you. You yeah. seem really well adjusted. I seem okay. And you don't resent her. I don't resent her. And she was around. I will say my little brother came 10 years after me. And she was around for much more of his childhood. And he is much like he, he needs a lot. Well, he's a boy, too. <laughs> a 
followers. My sister and I are like really, really very independent people. He's a little bit more of a mama's boy. <laughs> Probably what she needs as well. Exactly. And what you said a bit ago, I think is really important too, where you said too many women or, you know, women step out from guilt or whatever, yes. you know, financial needs or whatever might be the limiting factors, but we need more female directors. Yes, we do. We need more women storytelling across the country. Yeah. Yeah. We need more female directors, female critics. Mm-hmm. Um, Time's Up just did a really good study on critics and, you know, how Rotten Tomatoes is essentially a bunch of white male critics mm. and then they set the standards yep. and that's going to affect what movies get made and what, what stories are being told. And that obviously affects the rest of society. I'm really a firm believer in the responsibility of storytellers to consider how these stories affect people around the world and how they're living their own lives. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's not just making movies. Entertainment is important for all sorts of reasons, but storytelling is an ancient practice that really helps us stay connected Mm -hmm. and evolve. And I, I think that we have to empower all different types of storytellers Mm -hmm. or else we're, we're really going to, we're really going to end up in a place like we are right now politically. That's a result of only telling one type of story. And if you subscribe, I think to I, this gives me comfort, so you, everyone can laugh at me collectively, but I, I, I choose to believe that Trump is an unconscious martyr and mm. that like the role that he's playing is to you know, collectively wake everyone up, but I think also putting the responsibility back on us. You yes, know? yes. Be careful with our words. Be careful with the world we're creating. Yes. Make better choices. Like The yes. environment's clearly not going to protect itself. And it was right. in trouble long before he was and elected. And like consider the world between the coasts. Mm-hmm. Like that's a thing that, you know, we can get very comfortable in. We think of, of – many of us think of this country as existing primarily of New York and L.A. Mm-hmm. And that is part of what led us here. That there are people in the Midwest, in the South, all over the country who feel completely forgotten. And that's on us. There's a – there's – a, a sort of reckoning that needs to happen, I think, and we need to use storytelling, use our powerful tools of communication that are relatively mm-hmm. new to connect the country in a way. And unfortunately, those tools are being used just to divide us further and further. But what if we could turn those powers into a, a force of good mm-hmm. and to really try to communicate more with people who just think that he is finally representing their voices and that they haven't been heard in so long. And it's really hard. I mean, that's why I really respect people like Sarah Silverman, Mm -hmm. who on her TV show and just using her platform in general, really preaches the idea of communication. There was, I forget the name of the woman from the Westboro Baptist Church who left the church. Mm -hmm. And uh, Sarah made me aware of her. I think she was tweeting her interviews. And I was fascinated with the idea of the the last person on earth you think would ever be willing to come around and to um, kind of zoom out from their very constricted views, very bigoted views, it was the person who was able to remove themselves from that community and help teach a lot of other people about it. She did a great TED Talk about it. But Sarah has always been a person who's used, even though she is a progressive person, she's very political, she worked very hard for Bernie Sanders, She's really open to hearing the point of views of the other side. She travels around the country and mm-hmm. has these conversations about healthcare, about education in a really open-minded way. And the, that's what needs to happen. Van Jones yeah. is obviously great at that too. And 
I I think that is really admirable because I find that very difficult. I find it very difficult to have a calm yeah. conversation with somebody who has very different views than myself. Well, I think it goes back to your movie and it goes back to high school even. It's like, yes. like let, if we can just get to a point where we, we want to believe that everyone has good intent and then you just start there yeah. and unpack it from there. I think it's it's easier to arrive at the things that you collectively believe in, and I think a lot of it's just expo- you know exposure. I think you see it with the trans movement or all these things where we've made incredible strides yes. in so many places, and it's because those people are represented in the culture. Exactly, they're on TV like that. Tell again to go back to storytelling. That's the not. I think too. I think just to that point, it's about humanizing all of these issues and making them specific, anecdotal, as opposed to just statistical. Mm -hmm. You know, you see that even when you're working in the nonprofit world, if you say like 80% of children aren't given enough, uh, give the right nutrition in a specific country or education is like 60% of these kids don't know how to read at a first grade level by eighth grade. That doesn't affect people. But if you tell the story of one child, that really Mm -hmm. affects people. And I think in movements, you know, that was Harvey Milk's whole thing with uh, you know, the idea that if you say, oh, if you have a sort of removed sort of patronizing sense of, oh, it's a, it's a human, it's, it's a, it's the right thing to do. It's a human rights issue to care about gay people. That's never going to do anything. But if you say, hey, my friend's gay. Hey, my neighbor's gay. Hey, mm-hmm. I'm gay. He, that's why he told everyone you have to come out so that everyone will realize they know a gay person. Mm-hmm. And then that will launch the movement. So I think the humanizing of all these mm-hmm. people is important, but that means that we, and I say we, I shouldn't say we because everyone might have different views, but I think progr- the progressive left needs to humanize the mm-hmm. right in order to get anywhere. And I personally struggle with it, and I, that's, but that's what I'm striving for. We'll have more of Elise's conversation with Olivia Wilde in a minute. In the meantime, let's talk about one of our partners. As we learn more and more about the benefits of a plant-based lifestyle, an increasing number of us are looking for substitutes that offer nutrition benefits and taste good. So we were thrilled to learn about the refrigerated, non-dairy, Bolthouse Farms plant protein milk. It's made with protein from peas. Not only is it a delicious and creamy alternative to traditional dairy, it has more protein than other options like almond milk. I use this in my morning coffee. My son Max likes it in his cereal and smoothies or just to drink at night. And you can even bake with it. So here are some hard facts. Besides having 10 grams of protein per 8-ounce serving, Bolthouse Farms plant protein milk contains 50% more calcium than dairy milk, and it's fortified with B12, a nutrient that a lot of vegans and vegetarians are looking to add into their diets. We use Bolthouse Farms plant protein milk in a particularly good blueberry chia bowl. You can find the recipe on goop.com. And for more information on Bolthouse Farms plant protein milk and for store locations, visit bolthouse.com. Okay, let's get back to our chat with Olivia Wilde. To switch gears ever so slightly, but not really, the work you're now doing for True Botanicals Mm -hmm. is so important because obviously cosmetic contracts are sort of the are some of the most highest paid contracts in the industry, CoverGirl, et cetera. Well, traditionally, it's been the only way women in this industry have been able to even the scale because yeah. we get paid so much less than the men. It was the only way you were going to get paid enough to, you know, somehow even it out was to take on these contracts. But they were 
for a long time really frowned upon. Mm-hmm. The idea was that you it would make you an unserious actor mm-hmm. if you were connected somehow to a cosmetics contract. And I think that then really changed. You, you know, it was the same time that you saw models disappear from magazine covers and replaced by actresses. That was, you know, sort of happening in like mm. the, the late 90s. And then now we're in a place where it really is n- moved to the next stage where it's women owning these companies. Yeah. It's women like Gwyneth. It's women like Jessica Alba. And I found that True Botanicals was an example of a female-owned company that I wanted to not only be a sort of face of, but I wanted to really be a part of. I wanted to connect to it. I wanted to be their chief brand activist so I could really help preach what I think is a very important message that they're sending. But I'm connected to them in a way that's so different from a mere cosmetics contract, which is satisfying. It's satisfying and it's super cool that the, you know, for those who don't know True Botanical, it's one of the stalwart brands in the Goop shop. It's super clean, sort of setting a really high standard for no ingredient toxicity, et cetera. So it's, I think it's, it's another move as that, as we see more and more clean beauty brands emerge and, and sort of the, the shifting of people like you over to that side, I think is so important. And that's happened so fast, right? I mean, you know, people like Gwyneth have been talking about this stuff for a long time, but it's still been, I remember five years ago, I launched a company with my best friend called Conscious Commerce. And at the time we were talking about clean brands and it was still really niche. Mm -hmm. People thought of it as something, oh, you'd carry it in Whole Foods and it was never going to make a lot of money. It was never really going to break through. Standards would never change on a large scale. That's obviously not true. You see it in the fashion industry as well. You know, brands like Gucci deciding they're not going to use fur. Mm -hmm. That's a massive shift. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because consumers have really recognized their power. Social media has also really added to that. Their voices are louder, harder to ignore. People understand their dollar is their vote. They understand that they can demand better treatment. They can demand that they don't want um, brands to use toxic chemicals. They want regulation that is far beyond what the U.S. does Mm -hmm. on a federal level. I mean, you probably know this, but I was shocked to learn that The U.S. bans under 20 ingredients. To give you an example, the EU bans, I think, 1,300 ingredients in skincare products. Even more. And the U.S. is at 11. Is that 11? See, that's bonkers. So it's like we have to take care of ourselves. We have to take care of each other. And when I met Hillary and Christina of True Botanicals, I was sort of gobsmacked to learn what ingredients were in products that I thought were safe, even though I was one of the people really thinking about these things. Um, And I, their mission has been to completely eradicate the use of toxic chemicals in skincare and to change standards on a broad level, to change the way women approach beauty. So it's so much more than just launching a brand that they hope will do well and that makes people feel beautiful. But they actually want to shift mm-hmm. the system. Are you going to go to D.C. for them? Absolutely. That was one of the things I was really excited about when we first met. I was like, I want to really get in front of Congress yeah. and say, this is ludicrous. Well, it's amazing. And again, when you go back to people's intentions, I just don't think that they know. They no one know. has ever really, it's not It's not clear to them that consumers care, that their constituents care. And I don't think they have any idea because it's primarily white men. They don't know. And they... And, Unfortunately, women believe that 
in order to get results, there's a necessary amount of toxic chemicals that you need. So even when they think, okay, well, I understand. I want to use organic food. I'll give my kid organic milk. I understand that. You know, we've, that's also a recent shift. You know, Whole Foods has really changed the way people think about food. But now shifting beauty means telling women they don't need these toxic chemicals in order to get results for things like anti-aging, things like fighting acne. But all you have to do is look at the clinical trials. Mm-hmm. I mean, what I was fascinated by with Tributanicals is that in a blind clinical trial, their products perform better than proactive in terms of fighting acne and better than La Mer in terms of anti-aging. Mm-hmm. And I thought, whenever you can point to science, then you're golden because it's 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 subjective. Mm-hmm. And I think... That is probably the most unique thing about the company is that they've done the work to do the clinical trials. They've also been Made Safe certified. And Made Safe is a third party company that doesn't use, most companies use self reporting to, you know, to tick off the boxes of how clean the company is being. This is a third party that really looks closely at the supply chain, at the ingredients. Mm -hmm. And that is really hard to get. That certification is really, really hard. Mm -hmm. And they're the only high-end skincare company that is Made Safe certified. So they've worked really hard to check all these boxes. And I admire them because it's not easy. And they could have made a lot more money by being a little bit less um, conscious sure. of these things. The ingredients are more expensive. It's obviously more laborious. and But it's that transparency. That's what we really preach too is this idea. Women just want to make choices. Like give us all the information. Yes. And then we can choose an In-N-Out burger. Mm-hmm knowing yeah it's a burger knowing. or we can you know it's that exactly. it's like knowing. Give- and then there's moderation yeah it's it i you know i i think about this in terms of baby steps i tell people can i get you some true botanicals to replace you know this one sort of glycolic acid that you're putting on your face every night can i give you this serum can i give you the antioxidant booster that will do the same thing using apple peels you know mm-hmm. like there's exciting alternatives that you just want to offer to give women the choice. It's not about telling them they're doing everything wrong. Mm -hmm. It's about saying, here's some alternatives. Here's the science to back it up. You have the power to make these choices. And a huge part of it is that I think we're we're so conditioned to outsource our power. Like I had my sort of coming awake to this was when I had kids. I think that's true for a lot of moms is that you're like, wait, 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 what? Yeah. Like you just think, of course, like all medicine is regulated. Yeah. Like how? Yeah. Also, isn't it crazy that now we sort of take for granted, oh, when you're pregnant, avoid all these things. And it's like, okay, so what about when I'm not pregnant? Or or when you have cancer, avoid all when these things. When you have cancer, all these avoid all these things. Don't let your kids touch any of these things. But, but by all means, you alone <laughs> slather yourselves with gasoline and you'll be totally fine. I also realized when I had kids too that I didn't want to put anything on my face that then I meant I couldn't touch my kids. Like mm-hmm. that was a big deal for me. I wanted to, you know, put something on my face that wouldn't hurt them if we snuggled. And I just like to smush them all the time. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's something that is so important to me. And I, I kind of, I, I, it's a, it's a small part of this, but it's something that I think about every time when I'm, you know, putting them to bed and I'm just like resting my cheek on my son's cheek or my daughter's cheek. And I'm like, thank God the stuff that's on my face isn't going to like 
tear through their skin and cause all these problems. Their their developing hormones. So are you going to wait to go to D.C. until your mom wins her election? (gasps) Oh, my goodness. Leslie for Congress on Instagram. Yes. My mom, Leslie Coburn, is running for Congress in Virginia in the 5th District of Virginia, which is a massive district. It's bigger than New Jersey. It encompasses Charlottesville and then a bunch of rural areas around there. It's a big agricultural district. It's a really interesting part of the country. has all different types of people. And my mom has been traversing this district. She has been pounding the pavement for a year now and using her journalistic skills to approach politics differently. And one thing that makes me so proud among the many is that she was told by one of the locals in Danville County, you're the only politician who's come through here and asked us questions. Mm. Everyone else comes, stops by, gives their stump speech and keeps moving. And she just walked through town and asked people what they needed. Mm. And I thought, oh, that's because you're a journalist. And that's because that's how you're trained. And maybe we need to bring in a little bit more of that humble sense of questioning of not knowing into politics of what can I do for you? Curiosity. Curiosity. They work for us. Yeah. It's, it's amazing how quickly we forget that. How is it looking? Like what's, it's looking good. She won the primary, um, or it was actually a caucus in that district. She won and now she's there. Our Democratic candidate. And, you know, there's amazing amount of volunteers, local volunteers, student volunteers, and people from all over the country who know how important it is to win that district so that we can swing the House left, Mm. which is obviously essential for so many reasons. So there's 24 swing districts in the country that we need to, to go blue in order to win back the House. And the 5th District of Virginia is one of the major ones. So there's organizations like Swing Left, which is fantastic, which is working really hard to support candidates like my mom and Emily's List, which, mm-hmm. of course, supports all female candidates and helps train them. Mm-hmm. And if you ever have any inkling of wanting to run for office as a woman, Emily's List will take you through the entire process and hold your hand and set up shop for you. So it's amazing. I mean, there are more women running for office now than ever it's before. Staggering. I mean, by like staggering yeah. how many and it's and they're winning. I know. And it's incredible. I mean, that's another it's there's some staggering statistic about how there are more CEOs named John and David than there are female CEOs of Fortune 500 companies like the house. The co- I mean, it's all so staggeringly yeah. male, yeah. like just any like women of all parties, like if we can get women in there. Yeah, absolutely. Did your mom always want to run? No. As far as I know, maybe this was like a, a latent sort of passion that she knew about and, and didn't take seriously, but knew. I never knew. She did say the moment Trump was elected, she said, the only real resistance is running for office. Mm. And I said, yeah, but that's exhausting. Who's going to do that? She said, I'm going to do that. Amazing. And she could have easily retired. She had won every award in journalism. She she was very well respected and continues to be, but she decided to start from scratch. And that takes a, a serious amount of humility. So I really respect her for saying that. And it was interesting because like, we have in many ways parallel lives, me and my mom and we had a really contentious relationship when I was a teenager, like many young women. And of course it was because we were so similar and we, we got through that and became very close. And she now is going through the shift in her career while I'm going through the shift in mine. And I would, she would text me while I was on set directing the movie and say, how's it going? And I'd say, high stress, high reward. How's it going for you? And she'd say, same, same. And it was like, we were both tired, but so fulfilled and 
And, you know, what she's doing is um, certainly much more important for the world. But in my way, in my way, it's somehow what I do is 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 connected to what she's doing. It's it's she's out there really trying to change things on a massive scale from a political standpoint. And I'm trying to tell stories that will help support the same mission she's on. Yeah, I think they're they're incredibly related. It's like the conscious and the subconscious in a way, you know, like. The two, the two can't go. And there's without. my sister then doing the, the most important work. My sister is a criminal justice uh, activist. She's a lawyer who works hard to completely reform the criminal criminal justice system. And like, she's also a badass. There's a lot of good women in my family. I'm lucky. Seriously. So I have. To, are you ever going to get married? <laughs> <laughs> there's no time. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I I think at this point, if our kids really asked us to. It would be it would be a beautiful thing, but you know we're partners and co-parents, and it goes much deeper. I was married before, and yet I've never had a connection anything like the one I have now. Mm-hmm. Once you create a family, it's a different level, of course. But also, there's a there's a shift happening in this society that I think makes it feel less necessary. I think for a lot of people, no matter how sort of evolved and educated and progressive you are, there's a sense that you aren't legitimized. Your love, your relationship isn't legitimized until it is recognized by a court. And I think there's a backlash against that um, Mm -hmm. for good reason, because it, the origins of marriage, of course, come from ownership of women. And I think if you can truly even the scales by saying, I don't need to be connected to you by law, I can just know that we are connected by choice. And yet, who knows? Tomorrow I might be like, hey, let's go get married. You should just have a, a really big party. I'm always down for a party. That's, That's the, the thing. only thing that matters. It's the only, uh, not to get really sad, but... Your marriage and your death, those are the times when the people you love come together. They come. That's the thing. And any excuse to bring the people you love together because yeah. it doesn't happen enough. Yeah. So who knows? But, but I, I did like your husband's quote. I think he was on Colbert. And for those people who don't know, your husband's Jason Sudeikis, yeah. that he, you guys aren't going to get married till cannabis is legal yeah. in all 50 states. <laughs> We were like, he was, he told me he was going to say that. And I was like, go for it. Why not? Maybe it'll push the needle. <laughs> Tinctures yeah. for everyone. Yeah. Well, New York is getting close, so. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. That's Cynthia Nixon. Yeah. I'm really in awe of what she's doing. Isn't that incredible? Like, just thinking about her for a minute, she really had to decide that even though so many people were going to dismiss her because she was an actress, because she uh, is a, a New Yorker through and through and, you know, doesn't even come close to the experience of some other candidates in terms of political experience. She just went for it. And I'm so behind her. I'm so excited about what she's doing. I think it's really cool when any woman who's in the public eye decides to do something else. Yeah. And just like remind everyone that we have many skills, many skills, multidimensional. I always think of um, Nora Ephron did a great commencement speech. I think it was at Smith, but I could be wrong where she said, Just remember, graduates, you can always change your mind. I had three husbands and four careers. (laughs) Exactly. And I just love, like, I remember reading that and feeling so relaxed. And there's my mom at, you know, 65, completely changing her career, and I'm changing mine at 34. I mean, I'm still going to act, but this new world for me is super exciting. But there's something 
that happens to us around, I think, college age where we think choose your path and then stick to that. Choose your job, choose your partner, and that's what you get. And it's like, or consider yourself a complex, evolving creature that may completely change their mind, and that's okay. Thanks so much for joining our interview with Olivia Wilde. You can follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Olivia Wilde. I can't wait to see Booksmart. But now, it's Ask Me Anything time. Christina asks, when it comes to close friendships and your relationships with your girlfriends, what do you value most and what's most important to you? Well, Christina, I feel so incredibly fortunate because I have this amazing community of women in my life, some of whom have been in my life since I was four years old. And some of whom I met more recently. I think that the women who are in my community of women are women who really love other women and are looking for women to really achieve their highest potential. I think we really root for each other. We're honest with each other. We help call out each other's blind spots in a kind way. And, you know, as I look back, I think the female friendships that I have have been the most critical part of getting me through my life. And I really don't know what I would do without my girlfriends. I I don't think I would be able to survive. Have a question? Drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for this week's episode of the Goop Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and share with your friends. To keep up with new episodes, just hit subscribe. And for more info, head over to goop.com slash the podcast. See you next week.